Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of fascinating stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. The show is supported by Illustration X. Go and take a look at their incredible global range of illustration and animation portfolios now at illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, go and listen to Dirty Freud over on Spotify and all good music platforms now. Today I'm talking to design legend Stefan Sagmeister, who is back with his brand new book for Fiden, now is better. It's a wonderful blast of positivity and welcome perspective in an era of doom, gloom and social media grandstanding. There really is a completely different way to look at the world that basically shows the exact opposite and very, very much would have to would have any rational human being come to the conclusion that it is actually best to be alive now better than at any other time in human history. Hello and welcome to the show. This is The Creative Condition. I am your host, Ben Talon. How are you doing? I hope you're well. I hope you're feeling engaged, energized and creative. As we edge into these slightly darker nights, I'm feeling a lot better this time than I did last year. Um, this book is one of the reasons why I'm feeling better. There's been a, a kind of serendipitous sequence of shifts in perspective that I've had in um, thought processes and not getting caught in doom scrolling and reactive fight or flight instinctive responses which I could talk all day about, but I'm not going to because I've been writing extensively in the Creative Condition book about this, about um, how best to word this, about managing the mind, I guess, and understanding why we often feel so alarmed and so panicked and like there's no point in a lot of things, including our creativity, when we see certain news headlines and world events. Um, but I'm, that's not, it's not the time and place to go on about this because I've got an absolute industry legend on the show today. So Stefan has been prominent in the game, I guess, from the early 90s. Um, so he formed New York-based Sagmeister Inc. in 1993 and has since designed for clients as diverse as the Guggenheim Museum and the Rolling Stones and HBO and... His work is in museum collections around the world. Um, MoMA, Philadelphia Museum of Art, Art Institute of Chicago, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Um, he teaches now in the graduate department at the School of Visual Arts in New York. And he's not shy of a bit of controversy either and a bit of um, explosive, impactful, bold design. I remember coming across um, a hand lettering book in university in around 2004 and it featured the poster the infamous poster into which um, Stefan cut with a scalpel into his own torso the uh, details for a talk he was giving and being quite wowed by that and wanting to know more about this character and 
What's brilliant about Stefan though, it isn't all about the shock. It's about thoughtful, considered, brilliant design. He's earned his place among design royalty. And what's quite funny is when you start to describe graphic designers and illustrators as, you know, famous or household names, it very quickly falls flat when you get outside of our industry, save for a few people who might have come across them for whatever reason. And um, that's been the case, so I got very excited and I've been on the dog walk going, I just interviewed Stefan Sagmeister and people are like, who? And you remember that it's this quite secular industry, but I don't care because it's ours and it's beautiful and creativity is awesome. And to get to talk to someone as creative as Stefan was an utter joy for me. But on to his book, so a quick thank you, with, like I said at the top of the show, for the founding sponsor of the show, Illustration X. Been with me since day one in 2016, and um, interviews like this wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for the vision of Harry Lyon Smith in suggesting that I could do podcasting and supporting me all the way. So, big thank you to those guys. Go and check out their awesome roster of artist portfolios at illustrationx.com now. Um, but now is better. That's the sentiment and the title of this book by Fiden, Stefan's latest book. Um, like I said, I got myself quite into quite the state with the fatigue of early parenthood last year. I got quite, I don't know if I was quite depressed, I don't think I got, got there, but I felt very panicked and paranoid and deflated a lot of the time and it was very tangible in my mood and I'm, like Stefan will discuss today, I, we, we share a, a quite an optimistic baseline personality. Um, so I wanted to, to get in the ring and, and, and scrap this one out with Stefan and talk about positivity and, and, and long-term thinking, which is very much the, the, the foundation of his latest work in this book. So I'm going to read um, the information on the book for you to give you a sense of what we're going to be discussing today. So the book is beautiful, it's hardback, it's full of stunning visuals and fascinating statistics about the passage of time and why things Many things, most things are better now than they ever have been. In the book, Stefan doesn't shy away from the fact that the climate crisis is pressing and urgent and terrifying and that we need to address that now. But his point, and it, and it was reflective of my own shift in thinking, was that ultimately we have to fight to maintain a positive mindset and an engaged, curious, creative one because we are so much better when we do. So Fiden is pleased to publish Now Is Better, a beautifully fact-driven exploration of human progress throughout the ages, which urges its audience to choose gratitude and positivity over pessimism and despair. The body of work continues Sagmeister's lifelong preoccupation with how design can touch people's hearts and improve their lives. Initially conceived in 2020 as, a, as the world entered a global pandemic, Now Is Better looks at the quality of life issues through collected statistics and information, revealing that, despite how we may feel on a day-to-day basis, things are much better now than they used to be, inspiring us to think about the future with much-needed hope. Combining art, design, history and quantitative analysis, Sagmeister engages the reader by cleverly transforming data sets into stunning artworks. The visualised data is shown inlaid into 19th century oil paintings, embroidered onto canvases or transformed into dynamic lenticular prints and hand-painted tableware, many of which have been exhibited in galleries around the world. Pops of primary colours, dazzling geometric overlays and optical illusions help bring encouraging statistics to life, with every artwork further explained by an accompanying caption and additional information in the end matter it's it's brilliant 
So visually, it's so simple, so strong, and so provocative. So thought-provoking, I should say. But the nuances and the details and the stats are just uplifting, and, 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 and it's... It's going to sit on my coffee table for years to come for my kids to access because um, it's just such a great idea. Stefan tells it better than I do, so we're going to get to it. I've rambled long enough, but it was a joy to have him on the show. I urge you to buy the book, not out of any cheap plug for Fiden, even though they have been wonderful to me in terms of getting this podcast up and running. But it's just a beautiful thing, like all of Fiden's books. Um, I'm going to be talking to Julia Harding on... Uh, a future episode of the show which I'm equally excited about about her work as a creative director with Fighting as they enter their 100th year again just um, mind-blowing stuff big thank you again to sponsor the show Illustration X check them out illustrationx.com big thank you to Stefan for taking the time and a huge thank you for, to Fiden for uh, doing this and also big thanks to Kelly Carlson who was recently on the show of Metal and Dust who um, also knows Stefan and was um, influential in getting me on their radar so always takes a lot of people to make great creativity happen and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Stefan Sagmeister. But first of all the book is fantastic and thank you for um, for such a timely body of work I mean for me personally but also I think for everyone who's going to read it I think it's um, you've hit the nail on the head on so many levels. Yeah. I appreciate it. Um, I thought we could just start with the title. It's a fantastic title, first and foremost, because I think it works both ways. There's, of course, this is comparing, you know, statistically the current state of affairs on many, many levels, health and um, all kinds of things with the past. But I also felt like it's a mantra to the future and I guess mindfulness and, and about now in every respect. Would that be right? Absolutely. 100%. Yes, yes, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it for me it was just absolutely fascinating these two different ways that you could look at human development or look at the world in general, like you know, from a very sort of like short-term point of view, where almost everything looks terrible, which is of course what most news organizations concentrate on for many many reasons, and then there is this long-term view where that gives you literally the opposite kind of view of the world. And both of those, both of those views are correct. Like, you know, none of them is lying, but because of certain human conditions and we can get into them in detail, the short term seems to be much, 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 much more prevalent and Many of the people that I talk to and know, including my friends, wind up getting a view of the world that's really pessimistic and doom and gloomy when there really is a completely different way to look at the world that basically shows the exact opposite and very, very much would have to would have any rational human being come to the conclusion that it is actually best to be alive now better than at any other time in human history. I think you're absolutely right, you know, and I, and I had this conversation recently where I was talking to my wife and I looked back at, you know, through a book that I'm writing myself on creativity, I was looking back on various points in history and in every instance I came away saying, 
how fortunate am I to have been born at this time? You know, I, I don't, I have two young twins who are three years old. I don't have to worry about them getting a, you know, a horrible illness that's, that's within reason. Of course, there's always risk, but you know, I can, I'm in my back garden in a studio doing design for a living and, and no one's trying to blow up my, my shed, <laughs> you know? And um, I think you're right on so many levels. And, was this something, was this an idea, a sentiment that you tuned into for a while? Because I know in the book you tell the story of, of the the dinner and and the guy telling you the story, yeah. um, you know, that, that, that then triggered some personal research. But this must, must have been a longer term sentiment that you were aware of. Well, I think that in general, and I have some evidence for that, I think in general I was born as a quite optimistic person. I think that there was, if I, uh, the reason that I say that is because I discovered old audio tapes of mine when I was six or seven years old. And the sound of that voice is just so forward looking and exciting that uh, I don't remember that boy. Like I have very, very few memories of me as a six year old, but uh, I would think, so I think that I'm predisposed for it. Mm -hmm. But then, and of course, we made in the past sort of like fairly large multi-year projects that already went into some sort of positivity, like, you know, we did a, a film and a, an exhibition on happiness, we did a large exhibition and a book on beauty. So, I mean, there's definitely, you know, a starting line developing there. Uh, but I would say the, the real, the, the, the real beginning can be traced back to my time at the American Academy in Rome, because it was this fantastic combination of being able to have a salon like dinner every night and having time on my hand to really, uh, you know, think about what I want to do in the next couple of years. And this, uh, meaning I can tell the story very quickly, uh, you know, on one of these dinners, I uh, sat next to a very smart lawyer who was the husband of one of the resident artists. And he told me that what we are seeing right now in Hungary, in Poland, in Brazil, really means the end of modern democracy. And because I had the time on my hand, I actually just looked it up after dinner. I went back to the studio and I just checked. So what's the story with modern democracy? When did it start? Where are we now? And it turned out that, you know, it was basically, if you go back 200 years, there was a single democ democratic country, the United States. And then as you went for 100 years, there were, I think, 16 or 17, like, you know, in 1920. And now we have 86, 87. So we are actually living in the single most democratic times in the history of the earth. Uh, it never before have more than half of all hum has more than half of all humanity lived in a democratic system. And that seemed fascinating to me that this highly educated, smart, very well informed guy 
could be so incredibly wrong about the world that he lives in. Mm -hmm. And this is not just an idle thought because the decisions that this person is making are very much informed by the dooming bloom he thinks that he's living in. And, you know, let's say on a political level, a, a person like Trump is only possible if you think that absolutely everything is terrible and wow. things were much better before. I mean, his entire slogan is make America great again, meaning that it's not great right now, but it was much better in the future. Well, mm. if you just look at this single thought for a second, well, was it better 10 years ago? Well, it couldn't have been because Obama was in charge. Was it better 20 years ago? Well, there was 9-11, we started the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Was it better 50 years ago? Couldn't have been because Reagan was in charge and Reagan ran under the same, under the same uh, uh, line, make America great again, because Trump stole it from Reagan. Was it better 100 years ago? No, actually, it was the, it was the gigantic recession and everybody was shit poor. So it's a, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Yeah. But because certain human conditions, we tend to, we tend to think our bad memories from the past fade faster than our first memories because of the amygdala that alerts us or makes dramatic things that happen fast, like scandals catastrophes, accidents, much more they, in our foreground, that they come much more into our foreground than positive things that tend to develop very, very slowly and become better very, very slowly. And there's a good number, there's a couple of other reasons too, that we just all, including myself, kind of favor negative things mm. over positive things. And so, this whole project or all of the pieces in it, and of course the book itself, is sort of an attempt to just bring the other view onto the foreground. I'm extremely aware that the news will never change. The news basically, and it, they deliver to us what we like to. And I myself much more read about the la latest, much more likely will be pleased to read about the latest Trump fuck up than I would about a good thing that Biden just uh, uh, just did. Yeah. You know, like, I, uh, even though you could argue that this is my project, you know, meaning my uh, old client and, uh, and acquaintance David Byrne has this fantastic uh, uh, blog news organization uh, out called reasons to be cheerful which is a properly researched little small organization but he pays significant money for to basically put some positive news on mm -hmm. i'm of course following it but i have to admit i read it very rarely it's on a daily basis it's uh i think we all love drama we do, and you're absolutely right. And, and I've been researching this myself, and for a combination of a personal law, which is quite rare, I'm, 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 I, I share the kind of baseline optimism with you. 
I, you know, I, I, I grew up, I, I was fortunate to find this thing, the creativity and the arts and design, and um, which gave me great purpose and joy in, in more or less all my days. But then, I, you know, I had two young twins, so suddenly I'm exhausted and and, and, and my defences are a little lower and then the news oh. is quite dramatic. So a, a bunch of these things kind of ganged up on me, like the climate crisis and a number of things. But when I started to do the research to get to gain a better understanding of the way my brain was behaving, as in it would take one negative news headline and then the rest would just spiral and it would it was like iron filings to a magnet. So it would pull in any other problem in my life and, and, and dump it all in there and go, oh my God, this is horrible. Once I started to research this, there's it's very much kind of um, pr- almost primitive. So this goes back to you know food scarcity, and we've evolved to be more attuned to alarming negative yeah. things in our surroundings, which is actually the reason we're still here, or one of the reasons, because that sensitivity to our surrounds has enabled us to keep surviving throughout history, and, you know, and to the point of your book, one hundred percent to keep improving. Um, I think. You know, it's, un- it's unsustainable to to be in that alarmist mindset, in the fight or flight instinct for any period of time. I'm a great believer in adversity as a great source of creativity in moderation. I think mm-hmm. it's unsustainable to live in a high state of stress without, you know, without that becoming a very negative thing. Um, there was a great, I think it was in the foreword, Stephen Pinker wrote, um, that we can't count on our intuitions to reflect reality. And I thought that was, that gave great credence to the the data, the, the large data aspect of this book, which I thought was fantastic. So I'd love to talk about the visual representation of, of the numbers and the importance of separating, I guess, our, our minds from our inner chimp, if that makes sense, to, mm-hmm. to step away from those fight or flight instincts for a moment and do exactly what you did, which was take a step back and, do, and just do a little research or maybe balance the alarming news story and then and, and take a little time to look for something better because I think as creative people, we have a high percentage of highly sensitive people in this industry. And if we don't recognize and learn to manage the brain in this way, we can find ourselves in some serious negative loops, which is very counterproductive to creativity. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, see, sometimes I feel a friend, specifically a friend who is engaged in a, in a movement or in some sort of activism mm-hmm. will tell me you shouldn't really do that because it will make people complacent. You shouldn't point out all the positive things because then people won't be able to actually fight global warming or do something about the death of so many species. And I am actually convinced that it's the opposite. Like I, let's say if I look at myself, I am so much more useful to my surroundings when I am in a positive environment than if I'm in a, on a platform of doom and gloom. If I'm depressed, I'm not good for anything. I'm not good for, I'm not good for myself, but I'm definitely not good for my friends and uh, for my partner or for my, for my neighbors. And if I looked and I did like, what were the, you know, what were the big social change campaigns of the past decades you know one of course stood out which would be the non-smoking campaign incredibly successful you know like basically was able to to reach uh you know to in many countries cut the smoke cut the smoking population in half 
you know if 80 percent were smoking now it's 40 percent and uh and so on so the uh and if you look at how this worked it's pretty much everywhere it's the carrot and the stick that ultimately worked there needed to be all the warnings about shit will happen to you if you continue to smoking but there also needed to be the positive things like oh you're gonna get there's some very very good benefits for you when uh uh if this is happening so i think that uh right now there is basically or almost exclusively news media with you know maybe a five or ten percent exception delivers the stick and uh I think that this book is a tiny little attempt to also bring a little bit of the carrot into this mix. Mm -hmm. And it, had, it very much had that effect on me because I read the entire thing in a couple of days and it's, like I say, landed at a very personally resonant time when I I'd managed to get back to a really good positive state of mind by and large. And you're absolutely right. And that's what I was emphatically reminded was that Actually, I was terrible when I was feeling low on a number of days because I would just cut corners in my studio and I would sit there and I would find the easiest task to do instead of maybe going out on my bike and finding some new surroundings and, and being empowered in my day to day. And creativity, flow states, they happen when you're in that headspace. And this didn't, you know, I had to tell myself, this doesn't mean that you're neglecting any of the problems in the world, but in the, quite the opposite, you're coming to them with a fresh mindset. You're looking for positive ideas and solutions instead of just looking at them and going, well, why bother? You know, um, I feel like, yeah, I, I hope a lot of people get their hands on this because I think it could have, you know, really great impacts on our industry being so full of sensitive people, you know, because it's so easy to go under those. But it, then, would be, it would be wonderful. I mean, that's basically... You know, meaning that really is the idea because ultimately, you know, I feel that design, communication design really is a language and it's a very, very strong language. And many of us, including myself for a long time, used this language solely to do something advertising or promote, which I think is fine. And I'm completely like, I have nothing against selling. My parents were salespeople. I'm like completely on board with that. I also thought that considering that this is a strong language, that I should give this a really good shot to try to basically say some other things outside of the world of promotion. And so in that vein, you know, we did the exhibition and the book on beauty, which I think had very good resonances and i've uh meaning i've seen many indications of this actually being able to turn the dial a little bit mm. you know where uh this whole idea that it's that our world is just about functionality and has nothing to do with aesthetics is simply wrong but the uh, and of course, there is a, a similar desire and we'll see uh, how uh, successful I'll be with it. You know, it's uh, the, I try to do as, to work these on as many levels as possible. Let's say, you know, uh, I mentioned to you, I'm just coming back from Mexico. So we had another exhibition with these paintings, with the lenticulars, with the embroideries. 
opening there, but let's say we also have a, a, a poster block on the wall where, where visitors can rip a poster off, off and, uh, and uh, hang it up at home as a reminder that things are better. So, and I can tell you at the opening, we had, I think the poster block was 500 posters. And after the opening, there were maybe like after that, those two hours, there were maybe a uh, hundred left. Now, I don't think that all 400 who took the poster will actually hang it. Uh, I definitely signed as many posters, but uh, it's a, it's one little technique. Or we, uh, then I went to Bentonville in Arkansas and there we opened a very large mural eight eight stories high uh and again it basically it has it's part of this now is better series and you know that mural will be up for decades i mean that's definitely how we designed it and so uh it's i'm sure many people will just walk by it and say oh hopefully that's pretty but then there is a large sign there that explains the whole thing so again, just many different little spots of communication design uh, that I can deal with. And of course, the book uh, that's uh, coming out uh, this fall with Feiden is one of those elements, maybe the, probably the element for now that is the, that has the most information in it of all of the things that I can publish yeah mm. and, and I think it's a wonderful medium because you know I've just I've read the PDF version as part of the press but I, I cannot wait to get my hands on the physical copy I want that to be prominent on my coffee table when, when my children hit their adolescent years because I want them to to see when they inevitably get their angst and then and they and they encounter social media for the first time I want that to be the antidote you know um, and I think that, uh, so I think it's a lo another lovely permanent monument. And what I, what I loved about it is the, the sheer immediacy of the visual direction combined with the historic, you know, the stretch of time and the, the labor of the work. I'd love to just touch upon the, the process because I loved the images of the studio and the, and the physical treatment of the artwork. So if you could give us a little, uh, sure. to that. So I think that the strategy that we, the visual strategy that we applied most often to ultimately create these data visualizations that about long-term data, about things that have gone well, is one where I get paintings, 200-year-old paintings, and then basically cut these original paintings up and put new Today, many contemporarily manufactured inserts in there. So, uh, for if you, if I try to uh, describe this, so you can imagine you have a 18 or 19th century painting, let's say, of a landscape, and it's a pretty landscape because beauty was very important at that time, and now you have set into this landscape flush a number of very, very glossy, very different surface, hard forms in color. And it almost looks like a 
combination between a minimalist painting and a uh, you know 18th century landscape and but the minimalist painting part isn't really just an abstraction it really is a data visualization but you would have to uh, let's say in exhibitions you would have to look that up but the idea there are booklets that basically explain every painting but the idea really is that people also would buy this to hang in front of the you know on their chimney or in front uh, or above their couch as a sort of like more permanent reminder that things are not as bad as they might seem on x or on twitter and uh the so i but originally i got the first number of paintings from my great great granddad's uh lot who had a antique store in western austria and now i buy them at small auction houses in central europe mostly austria germany uh belgium holland and uh i actually just when i came back uh just now i had a gigantic box uh from a auction house in germany here and i think i got six more paintings in uh it's uh you know i uh, and uh, I photograph them here in the Manhattan studio and bring them then out to the studio in Brooklyn, where we have more of a manufacturing place where, you know, uh, it's more like a woodworking studio because the process is actually pretty complex because when you take those 18th century paintings off the frame, you know, parts of paint come off when you wrap them and fold them differently because for, of our inserts, the stuff comes off. And uh, we actually see, like I design the, the, the pieces digitally, and then we use the digital files to see and see uh, the inserts and see and see a new frame that the painting is wrapped on. And then we, you know, very much by hand, bend the paintings in, uh, uh, affix them onto the new background, uh, put the fit very, very exactly, which is different from painting to painting because they're all in very different conditions. Some of them have doubled or three canvases, so they're all individual, very individually treated. And uh, uh, at the end, we have a fantastic restorator who then basically restores the entire thing so that any chips or uh, messing chips or so uh, will become invisible again. Wow. And then how long are we talking as a process to, to, you know, for all the works that are in the book? I think that uh, the, the book really shows a time span of about five years, roughly. Mm. Uh, and, but I'm still like, you know, I'm, but I, have, I should say that I extremely enjoy the process. So I'm definitely, I'm still working on new iterations. And, you know, as we as a team also get much better at doing them, I think that they are the, the, the latest ones, I think, are more exactly going into the direction that I that I had 
envisioned from the beginning. We have now a very quite a, a huge contrast between the inserts and the historic paintings. And so uh, I'm definitely making more. Also, I meaning for one reason, because as I said, I enjoy the process. But I think there's also no shortage on uh, on the other side or negative news. So I think that it makes sense to put more positivity there as a counterpoint. And I would say also, I think that important for me, actually, and uh, I know that many other, that a good number of artists wouldn't care, but important for me is actually that they work as in when we have exhibitions, they actually do sell, meaning which is pleasing on one hand that it makes it also sustainable as a project. But I think just as important is that they really do hang it's in somebody's home as a reminder. It's uh, uh, so that uh, path is actually also quite important to me. I, th I think so. And I think there's an integrity there. And I think there's a, a love of, you know, when you continue the work beyond the project, it speaks for itself that it's making you feel good and, and there's there's worth in this project. Um, you mentioned that, you know, you're, you're a quite naturally optimistic person. And I think I heard a, the, a, one of the better descriptions of confidence that I heard recently was the, the brain's ability to to predict a positive outcome. You know, because there's this misconception with, I think, within, within design and the creative industries, we, we like to put people on pedestals. And I think it's safe to say you've earned, you know, you've earned your reputation as a, as a longstanding designer and a very good one. Thinking back to a time before you you found your own bricks in the industry, would you say that that optimism helped you to build that confidence before you had the tangible projects to say that you were a good designer? Yes, I would say so. I meaning I'd say that uh, my desire, even as a student, was always to do the best possible work that I can do at that time. And I can't say that I did that always, because sometimes I was also lazy and sometimes I just didn't have the energy or so. But I definitely remember instances. Let's say I very well remember when we did our first book, the uh, 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 Made You Look, we worked on it forever and ever and ever. And at the end of it, I remember thinking, I have no idea if this book, I really didn't know, like I have no idea if this book is any good, mm. but it's as good. I know that it's as good as I can make it. There is no like, I now don't know how to make it better. And I think that that is ultimately all you can do. It might, there might be better, there might be other people out there more talented with more resources, smarter, better looking, whatever, uh, that, uh, that can do a better thing than you or than me. But I think if you, if I can go to that edge where I know, okay, this is, this is how good I can make it right now. And I don't know how to make it better. I think that's really all I can do. I think that's it, and because the reason I ask is there's such um, almost a rallying cry in this in this project 
for a shift in mindset away from doom and gloom. And I'm a huge believer that looking after the mind and, and and looking after our confidence and also seeing it as something that we can better, that we can understand our brain and we can be, take better control of how we feel. By doing that as designers and creative professionals, I believe that you generate your own confidence. Now, of course, you know, as you produce more good work for commercial clients, then you become more confident because of those previous results. Mm-hmm. But not everyone has those previous results to go on. And that's why and that's why I think there needs to be a great importance on finding ways to feel impassioned, to feel good. Because speaking personally, every stylistic advancement or breakthrough, it came in a great time of wonder. You know, I, I felt wonder in the world and I felt excitement about what I was doing. Invariably, the work that I struggled with it's because I couldn't find flow or I felt down or whatever the reasons were. And I just think there needs to be such an importance now as, as a creative professionals on managing the mind and being very aware of the role of, you know, the, the, the dark news stories and everything else. And I just think it all ties in with what you're doing here. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I would sign off on that line uh, every time. No, no, absolutely. Mm. Um, one bit that was what I thought was fantastic was um, it was how you described the smartphone and when you listed all of the things that it's replaced in terms of consumerism and materials, it did make me laugh because I think my mother-in-law still has each of those individual items. <laughs> you know, the yeah. road necks and the yeah. landline. And, yeah. But it, that gave me a great lift because there's, a, you know, I, I might have been guilty of looking at smartphones and going, oh my God, you know, people are wasting their time on the on social media and it's energy use. That I'd never considered all the things they had replaced. So that individual statistic was was profound in its own right. Well, I mean, that came out of, uh, you know, actually numbers from the UK. I think it was those numbers are only really available or I've, that's, that's the only country where I found them, where it shows that we are now using about a third less stuff, like the average person in the UK now uses 10 tons of things a year, which is still an incredible amount, but it's down from 15 tons a year. And that is partially uh, uh, true because we just like through digitization, we just don't need that many things anymore. And I think another role there for sure played that the this idea to own that many things, I think is losing its power through the younger generation. If I look at my nephews and nieces, they have much less interest in driving big cars, in owning this and that, than let's say my generation had. So I think that there is also some, definitely some bright light there for sure. Mm, without, without a doubt. And, and how do you feel about nostalgia in, in, in particular in design? I think we have to be careful. I think it, what I, I talked to Andy Sandoz, who was the president of DNAD when I talked to him at the time. And he was very positive about technology and, and his his comments were along the lines of, you don't have to use any of the new tools, whether that's artificial intelligence or know how to code, but you have to be aware of them and you have to factor them into your decision-making as, as creative professionals, which I thought was a great way to put it. But he felt like things could be more provocative, more dangerous, because we have access to all of human history now through the phones in our pockets. And his question was, where is the banshee whale? He felt that we were falling back on nostalgia too much. 
um, given that we have access to all of it. And it was, it felt like it was coming out in the design world as, you know, nostalgic and, and repetition. Do you feel that way or do you feel more positive about where we're headed? I mean, look, I think that design in general was always influenced by technology. You know, meaning starting with the serifs of the Roman typeface that came of a, that you know came out of the tool that the typeface was made for, uh, to the reaction to Gutenberg's printing press, to the digitization, digitalization. It basically the design was always pushed forward by ultimately by technology, and I think that we are now, of course, at another gigantic cusp uh, where uh, I'm sure much of this technology that we are now starting to get access like AI will in the beginning create an incredible amount of problems because we don't quite know uh, we know well we know some of the pitfalls that it brings and I think some of these pitfalls we will ignore and some of them we hopefully take care of. But the ones that we ignore will definitely create trouble. But I feel that in general, the technologies, if you, and I think that the book is a good reminder of that. If you look back, the technologies that we invented were by and large, if you look at history, more often used for something positive than something negative. There's just, there were more houses built with a hammer than people killed with the hammer. And uh, I feel that ultimately we will go in a very similar direction once we are, uh, once we can overcome the problems that AI generates, we will ultimately will have a positive outcome. Look, I think that basically any move forward, any development, any uh, any uh, you know human innovation will have side effects, and some of them we will we uh, we uh, will or many of them we basically have to fight those side effects, take care of them, overcome them before progress can go forward again. Mm. So you've got you know I'm a big believer in. And you you hit upon this, but the 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 power of visual communication is, is huge, particularly in the way people consume the world around them now through technology. Um, you've got some fantastic projects that speak to this. I, in particular, I love the Move Our Money project, mm. and I adored the Tunnels of Toronto. And they, I, I felt like they both just showed the um, two very different case studies of, of the power of visual communication. You know, with the problems we face in the world today, the climate crisis and the likes, do you still believe that that we that us as creative professionals have a major role to play in in pushing things the right way i mean you know ultimately i don't really believe that let's say designers have a bigger responsibility to better the world than any other profession does you know i think that like in my case it, I think that we as citizens have some sort of responsibility. And I think not just a responsibility, I think that there is also a desire in us. It's a meaning, I definitely 
without any doubt have a desire to create. Like I can't, I can't sit on the couch, watch Netflix every day, uh, all day long. I just can't, it's not possible. And so with this desire to create something, to change something, to do something, of course, of course, it is much more satisfying to, to be able to look at an aspect that has meaning. And in my case, uh, I felt that I should be doing something that another designer is not doing. You know, that was the case with, with beauty, meaning that if there would have been other design groups out there who were creating exhibitions on beauty, well, I have, and I said, okay, then fine. I think that that is, uh, somebody's already doing that. Uh, it doesn't need me to do that. And very similar uh, with this subject of long-term thinking. Now, of course, there are people out there who very, very smartly and intelligently work and push long-term thinking. There is a fantastic group out in California called the Society of the Long Now with Stuart Brand. And I think your very own Brian Eno is part of this. And they are making large projects, I think most significantly a 10,000 year old clock to bring home or to sort of like manifest a more long-term thinking as a pilgrim site for humanity. But I'm not aware of anybody else uh, that does this in the world of communication design. So I thought, well, that's, uh, that's, I think, makes sense for me to do. It has some meaning. And that, of course, is also from a process point of view, extremely helpful because most of the projects that I'm dealing with at one time are in trouble. Like, you know, there is a point at one time when, I don't know, I'm stuck with the idea, there is uh, uh, whatever, not enough budget, not enough time, there is, uh, this didn't come out as I hoped for and so on. So there is in almost any, it's, it's, a very, it's the rare project that stays completely trouble-free. And in those times when it's troublesome, it's helpful if the project is meaningful because it helps me very, very well to get over the troubled times because if I think this project doesn't really have meaning, then I might give up on it. I might just say, you know what, this is just too much trouble for, for that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, really, that's really, I would say, the main reason. Yeah. And I think that meaning meaningful is completely subjective and individual isn't it i think there's the, there's a risk that we we often look to the sharp end of things so you know when someone says activism the brain kind of often thinks of placards and big marches but it can be the tiniest most quirky little project that means something to you but i think if it lights you up inside the chances are that it's going to resonate through the work with somebody else and i think that that's worth remembering yeah yeah you know. meaning i found that my whole being is mainstream enough that if I do something that I think actually I quite like this, I think that this is a good direction. This, uh, I like it myself. I find that other people do so too. 
I think you're right. And and you know what? It took me a, a good few years to realize it. But after a while, you know, I always had an itch to work way beyond illustration. That's my that's what I'm known for. That's my day job. I, and I love it. But it, it's taken me far and wide into all these wonderful other creative fields. And what I came to realize over the years, and this applies to many, maybe everyone, but, you know, the way I talk on this podcast, the way that I write in fiction, the way I write in nonfiction, the way I draw, they all come from the same creativity, from the same mm-hmm. voice. And I think that's that just opens up doors. And I think that's, you know, it's really, really valuable. And I think I think I read it in your interview with Kelly Corzon because I had Kelly on the show recently. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think you said, I wouldn't worry much about developing a signature style since it's much more difficult to get rid of than develop. And I thought that was fantastic. And my word, you know, I've seen some of the best people out there hit the finite part of what they're doing but continue into a into a series of diminishing returns because mm-hmm. they maybe hold themselves up too much. And that is a real risk, isn't it? 100%, absolutely. And it's, but, you know, even in there, I sort of over the years changed my opinion somewhat. Like when I was a very young designer, I literally thought that every project needs to be done in a new formal expression and a new style and it turned out that that was just not possible like that if you really wanted to keep that up you wound up stealing from history like you know you did article yesterday and whatever 50s bubblegum the day before or you wound up even worse stealing from other designers Mm -hmm. so once i realized that i allowed myself more to repeat certain stylistic or formal elements. And with that, and I think with age, and I'm, it could be that, that, that it's also an excuse. So I'm not 100% sure, but I think with age, I also got to really enjoy the artists or designers who stayed the same all their lives. Let's say I'm a big fan of James Terrell, And, you know, meaning he's been working with light all his life, but not only that, he's basically been creating the same skyscape, like that room with a opening for the, for the sky that you really watch the sky. He's been doing rooms like this, I think for 40 years, but they get better and better and better. Now, if I see one, if I, if I say, oh, there's a skyscape of James Terrell in that town, I look up at what time at what year it's been built, because I only want to see new ones. I don't really like the old ones anymore, having been in a whole bunch of new ones. So I'm super happy that he stayed with it. Or maybe Bob Dylan would be another example where you're just kind of happy that they didn't, I mean, obviously they all had stylistic changes, uh, you know, super like a 50 year old Dylan song is different from a song now, but in general, the overall gestalt kind of you know, stayed similar. And so, which is also really the reason that uh, I'm very happily, you know, right after this, uh, right after this podcast, I probably go back and design new historic inserts for historic paintings for a couple of hours, even though I've done that already four years ago. But I, I, think that I can do a better job now than I did four years ago. 
The forms are more complex, the colors are more sophisticated, the finishing or the, 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 the ultimately the production is, is more precise. Mm. Uh, which I probably, which uh, not probably, which for sure, a hundred percent, I would not have allowed myself to do uh, when I was twenty-five. I think it's one of the things that I love most about your work is that you know the lack of fear to 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 move between things. But I also wanted to ask, you know, you are very clear about saying you're a designer, and has that has that helped in your career tra trajectory to first have that the, the innermost confidence in you know that that's primarily what you're doing ultimately the, the biggest difference between design and art would probably be one of functionality mm -hmm. you know that design really has to work art really does not it can just be uh, or at least art as we see it in the 21st century art of course when you look at it historically had a lot of functionality like you know if you look at the, the art that was produced in the renaissance it had to do all sorts of things Praise God, make the make the uh, the king look very good, uh, uh, <laughs> be decorative in some, you know, in some summer palace for the Medici's, whatnot. So, but uh, right now I think that art can just be design has to has to work. And there is a, a fantastic uh, little paragraph in an Adorno book where he talks about that, that difference between between functionality and non-functionality. And he says that ultimately there is no such thing as a hundred percent non-functionality because even the least fun functioning piece of artwork, let's say the art from the 60s where they really didn't want to have any functionality, let's say so levit or so, where it literally was just about this is, this can be. Even that, of course, has functionality, you know, it can be used as a as a uh, commodity to trade something, it can be used for money laundering, it can be used as a background for your selfie and also all of these things. But on the other side, there is no such thing as 100% uh, functionality, because even the most engineered piece ultimately is a little bit informed by ideas like, I don't know, transparency or so that come from the non-functioning world. Mm. So the, if you accept this sort of Adorno explanation, that means that all of the work, both of the designers and the artists are just on this moving scale between functionality and non-functionality. And I think that I myself, as a designer, always tended to be on the more non-functioning side. Like, you know, even album covers are not the most functional thing. So they're definitely much less functional than, let's say, I don't know, uh, text forms. Mm -hmm. And yeah. even though, you know, the design of a text form is something culturally very important and would be a fantastic job, but it's very, it's, uh, it's, it's on the more functioning side of a usual design studio. And what we're doing now is probably, you know, on the very little functioning side. It's also interesting when you look at the audience or as a whole, we tend to prefer people who make non-functioning things and put a more 
put more praise on them. Let's say the person who builds the cathedral gets is more famous than the person who builds the factory. Yeah. Well, you know, having, you know, no toilet, no kitchen, no meeting rooms, uh, being, uh, being really not a very functioning kind of building. But if I talk to architects, even the ones who don't be who are not spiritual at all, they love building a cathedral or a chapel. Mm -hmm. Love that much more so over than something that has to have a lot of functionality. And, uh, uh, and the same is true really for for graphics. I mean, I think in the book, I use that example, you know, many of us will know who designed the music magazine article in all dingbats, you know, completely non functioning. Yeah, but, uh, uh, very few actually will know the who designed the, you know, uh, the, the UK tax form, yeah. even though if we look at it from a rational point of view, the design of the UK tax form is a much more important job than some page in a music magazine. Mm -hmm. I had a book at university called About Face, and it went deep into the science of all the road signs and the transport and the motorways, and I found it fascinating. Yeah. But again, can't remember a single name, but I know you're talking about David Carson, so you know you, you highlight he won. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know totally, it's a. Uh, I think that ultimately, we as humans love to get up higher on that pyramid of Maslow and enjoy things that aren't that have low functionality. I mean, I think this is, you know, this is this was the case in churches. And they have now been taken over by museums. I think we are attracted by this idea that you go into a museum and it doesn't really do much, but it's been a, there is an incredible amount of effort, money, space has been put aside for something that doesn't have to do a lot. I think we ultimately find that space, it allows us to contemplate, it's, uh, it rips us out from our daily functioning path, you know, and I, let's say I've also used the example. If you look at a, if you look at a commute, it's a very high, highly functioning way to go from A to B because it's, uh, uh, you really have to go to work. But if you look at a walk in the park, it's, you might just wander around. The functionality is super low, but it's so much more enjoyable. Yeah, and I think it speaks to our, our innate need to see life as something other than just problem solving. Yes, that's exactly. Because they're the exactly. bits we remember, and that's what, yeah. And that's what, yeah. what yeah. Stays, stays with yeah. us. Yeah, and I think that, you know, all of the designers who really see themselves as pure problem solvers, I think have the problem that the problems that we usually solve in design are so easy that there is some sort of laziness in that pure problem solving, that it is just much, much, much more difficult to design a beautiful drinking glass than it is to design a functioning drinking glass. I mean, a functioning drinking glass is basically 
it's it's so easy because you know what the circum the circum uh, meant for the opening should be. You know roughly how big or how much water it should it should contain. Uh, it's one of the easiest things in the world. You can meaning you and I could probably design a couple of dozen before noon uh, to design a beautiful drinking glass that is current in its design, meaning it has something to say about 2023. It's a very difficult task because you're looking, you're fighting against 2000 years of glass history. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you really, and I, it's funny because I actually have a 2000 year old glass right here. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it, that's a totally, that's a totally much, 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 much more difficult task. Uh, yeah. And I, I, and I, I think it's one that you've so very successfully pulled off with this book on many levels, because it's just, you know, the, the, all of it, the page design, everything. It was it was such an easy read in the best way. You know, the, the art was beautiful on an aesthetic level. The functionality was very admirable with the way you've represented all the data in those, in the, um, I've forgotten the words you used, but the, the color sections yeah. when they, in yeah. each word. But then even down to the, the little, the breakdowns of the data in the columns, you know, it, it just, it works as a piece of functional and a really beautiful piece of design. So, um, oh, and I wanted to ask about the, the, the lettering. What did you create the lettering with? Uh, that's it. Basically, it's, uh, it's the simulated uh, molten, uh, molten tin. So basically, the heat, the digitally heated up tin and let it freely flow so that it would basically almost find like we uh i did design uh in ink sort of a template but then the tin really found its own way uh and hardened in its own way but it did so digitally like you know with a lot of uh physicality being involved in that uh yeah it's uh uh that's just uh a little side thing for the the cover headline, but also for the for all of the chapter headlines. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, to promote the podcast when it, we early on, I had a three D print commissioned and and mm -hmm. created this whole set and built on it and around it. And um, but it reminded me of the kind of digital representation of the three D print scan. It had that kind of um, ragged feel to it almost. Yes, and, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. great. It looks fantastic, by the way. It looks good. Um, so the last thing, I, the last thing I wanted to touch upon, which I think is very important for our world, our information overload world today, was your your belief in the power of sabbaticals and time off. And I, I recently interviewed the editor of uh, Idler magazine. I don't know if you've come across that in the UK. Um, and Tom Hodgkinson, and it's about a more, it's a slower pace of life, and it's about fulfilment and about checking in with yourself to correct your course in life. Mm -hmm. Um, the sheer amount of information we're exposed to today, I just wanted to, I just, you know, would you mind just giving us a little insight into your your love of sabbaticals and why you take them and, and the time off? Well, I had uh, the first one came around really after seven years or I thought about doing one mostly because I felt I was the work was becoming repetitive. And. I thought that I should use my time wisely. And 
I had all sorts of fears that now that the studio was established, we were going to be forgotten, that it will look, this was the first one was in the year 2000. So it was at the height of the internet, of the first internet boom. So I fear that it's going to look very professional when everybody else is making, uh, making lots of money. We are closing for a year. And it turned out that my fears didn't come true at all, that we were not forgotten, that clients waited around for us. Uh, so all my assumptions like this were wrong. And that this year of not pursuing my regular jobs at that point, we had done mostly album covers, yielded an, an incredible amount of new directions and new thought processes that I could implement immediately after, afterwards when the year was, when the studio was open again, mostly in that work that came out as things I've learned in my life so far, which were these sentences that I had learned and that we did as sometimes very large projects for clients. But that really was sort of like my first, uh, my first step into a direction what can design do outside of the promotional world? And that was, you know, quite a personal project then that was incredibly satisfying to create, uh, was, I think, successful in the way that it, uh, it put the studio on a track that differentiated it from other design studios, which paradoxically even turned out financially well because then when as once we were not really comparable we weren't also really in these price fights with other design studios mm. and but this was not something that i had planned this was you know a complete unexpected side effect and it was not only pleasurable but i also felt that it was a great strategy to remain in design as being a calling rather than just looking at it as a job. And once I realized that, it became clear that, oh, I'm going to do a second one for sure in another seven years. And then it, that was also worked out extremely well. We, uh, in the second uh, sabbatical, we started many things that we had not done before, like furniture, but also we started the Happy Film. It really was created then in the studio years afterwards, but started in the second sabbatical. And uh, so it was also then very, very clear that it's going to be a third one, which really was the beginning of the beauty project. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm definitely going to do a fourth one, even though right now, you know, like, on basically everything that I'm working on right now is somehow connected to the now is better theme. So I'm already very, very much doing whatever I want to do. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how that influences the next sabbatical. Uh, but I'll definitely going to do one uh, that's going to come up in fall next year. So it's actually quite close. That's great. Yeah, because because also there's a difference, even though you're working on your own work and it's completely autonomous, you still have to allow the unconscious to to digest and to, you know, re regurgitate all the things that we put in our head, don't you? Otherwise, yeah. if it's regardless of whether it's commercial or not, 
if you don't yeah. give that part of your brain the, the chance to produce, then those great there's truly great ideas that are going to take you into your next echelon that are not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, looking very. I mean, I just wanted to say looking very much forward. If I'm honest, no, it's like I, by now I think it's it's I can't even say that I'm looking very much forward to the next sabbatical. It's just integrated. It's integrated in my work life, and I'll. Uh, uh, it's going to be fine. It's going to be good. Mm. Yeah. And I think when you see the world that way and you see your future that way, you make decisions to make it so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's totally okay. Brilliant. Well, um, this has been fantastic. And I thank you very much for your time. And um, oh, thank you so much for talking with me, Ben. Of okay. course. It's my pleasure. And, uh, and again, congratulations on the book. Thank you for doing it. And uh, I'm very excited to see what the response is going to be. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you to Fiden, to Stefan, of course, for taking the time out of his schedule promoting now is better to have this conversation. Grab the book, it's beautiful. It's a reminder that Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it these days, is a bit of a cesspit and it's not reflective of our reality, of our current situation. Um, it can be useful, it can be good, I like the platform, but it takes some navigating these days. And it's much better to sit down with a cup of tea or a glass of whiskey and just take in this beautiful piece of work. So um, go and do it. It's out now. It's brilliant. Um, coming up, we've got Julia Harding, creative director of Fiden. I'm going to be talking about the broader theme of designing beautiful artistic books and about her role as creative director. It's, good. it's a very exciting prospect for me. Um, we've got the 200th episode coming up next. Jen Graneman. Very, very excited about that. She's an expert in sensitivity and it is everything about the creative mind. So it just struck me as an ideal 200th episode in tune with where this show has gone over time, been much more in the road of psychology and well-being and mindfulness and mental health um, as drivers of creativity. So I hope you like where the show is going in that regard. Please do get us your feedback. Big thank you if you've ever contributed to the show. You can really support by uh, sharing and subscribing and reviewing. It would be most welcome, if you, especially if you're a regular. Please do take out a few minutes to do that. And I'm going to be announcing the details very soon of a crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter to get the book, the Creative Condition book, up and running. Very excited about that. Long way to go. It's written, it's edited, the cover is designed, and now it's going to be your chance to get your copy of the book. So more details on that. Keep an eye on me primarily on LinkedIn, also on Instagram. Drop me an email, hello at bentallen.com, or hit me on social at bentallen. Awesome, guys. I hope you've enjoyed this one with Stefan Sagmeister. Looking forward to the 200th episode. Have a great week. Stay creative. <laughs>